This week on the Defense Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, a cyber stretch is coming at the Defense Information Systems Agency and the technology strategy to turbocharge the warfighter of tomorrow. It's Wednesday, August 3rd, 2022. Welcome to the Defense Scoop podcast. Every week you'll learn what's going on in defense technology. I'm the host of the Defense Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Defense Information Systems Agency is expanding a cybersecurity prototype, and a big component of the Navy has its artificial intelligence plan ready to go. Brandy Vincent is reporter for Defense Scoop. John Harper is Defense Scoop's managing editor. Welcome to both of you. Brandy, I start with you. Naval Surface Force, U.S. Pacific Fleet, drafting its first ever data and artificial intelligence strategy and implementation plan. What is in there and where are they headed with this? Welcome. Thank you so much for having us, Francis. Um, So many of our listeners might already know this, but the Surface Force essentially equips and staffs Navy warships before they're deployed to their respective fleet commands for military missions. So we're not talking about submarines or things in the sky. We're talking specifically about the warships. Um, I was able to get a preview um, from that force, the U.S. Pacific Fleet, on their first ever overarching data and AI strategy and implementation plan. Um, Task Force Hopper is a task force within the force that was stood about a year ago um, to really help them accelerate uh, the use of AI capabilities across the force. Um, But as you know, all good data and AI relies on All good AI and machine learning, I should say, relies on good data. And so in this um, strategy and implementation plan that they've crafted, they're really focusing on making data AI ready. So it gets into data management, data governance, um, the digital talent that they have, and really ensuring that they have clear data-defined use cases for AI because they're pulling data from so many different sensors and and other parts of the of the huge force, which is uh, one of the Navy's actually largest um, enterprises. The strategy itself, a little bit more on that, um, it it anchors on a federated model with a number of different supporting organizations, um, and it's really about central data governance and then having these decentralized analytic and AI nodes throughout the force um, where data is really being used. Um, And we are expecting to see that uh, strategy come uh, in the next few weeks and as soon as the end of the summer, they've told me. Are they to use cases yet or are they still at a level where they're determining what the potential use cases are as part of building the strategy, Brandy? It really depends on um, the different AI nodes. So each of those nodes have specific uh, use cases, data they're collecting and use cases that could be applied to it. Some of those nodes, um, such as the surface analytics group uh, that counts as one of the nodes, has um, already started started their journey in sort of use cases around um, uh, predictive maintenance and condition-based maintenance um, and sort of warships of the future in that way. And so, like I said, there's there's still very early in the process. There's a wide variety of use cases, but it's really going to depend on the node. John Harper, welcome. Uh, what is Thunderdome at the Defense Information Systems Agency and why is DISA expanding it? Welcome. 
Thanks, Francis. Uh, Thunderdome is a high priority project for DISA, and uh, its purpose is to try to help uh, DISA and DOD move toward what's called a zero trust uh, cybersecurity architecture. And it's a different way uh, of, of doing cybersecurity, different framework uh, than traditional methods. And it's part of a broader push across the federal government uh, based on a, a Biden administration executive order from last year to try to push uh, all uh, departments and agencies to move toward uh, zero trust. And uh, the big news recently is that DISA is expanding their prototyping project called Thunderdome, uh, which they're working on in partnership with uh, Booz Allen Hamilton through another transaction authority prototyping agreement. Um, they're expanding it to include their classified network uh, the Secure Internet Protocol Router Network, better known as SIPRNET. Um, the original plan called for developing a prototype uh, for unclassified networks, uh, but this is a really significant uh, expansion. And SIPRNET um, is a really uh, important tool for DOD because it's used globally uh, to transmit data among U.S. military forces. Uh, so this is a significant expansion, and uh, they're extending the uh, project timeline, uh, development timeline by about six months uh, to accommodate this expansion uh, of the project uh, to include the classified network. So this is a big deal. Yeah, you report in your story on this on fedscoop.com, just the deputy director, Chris Barnhurst, saying uh, that we realized early on we must develop one in tandem for the classified side, for the SIPRNET, in addition to what they were already developing for the NIPRNET. Um, this indicates to me, at least as an amateur outside observer, that the project that they were working on on the NipperNet has been successful enough that they're willing to try to apply it on the classified side. Is that a fair read on my part, do you think? Yeah, I think so. Um, and, you know, they also said that uh, the Ukraine-Russia war, which kicked off in February, um, about a month after this uh, award was given, uh, to Booz Allen, um, you know, DISA officials are saying that uh, the war, which is featured, you know, reportedly featured cyber attacks from both sides, kind of underscored uh, or highlighted uh, the need to include the SIPRNET in the Thunderdome initiative. Um, and Thunderdome, you, you know, it's a prototyping effort, but, you know, they're hoping to, you know, scale this type of technology um, across the department. So, uh, you know, it's an important project for them and has uh, major implications. Uh, you report toward the end of the story, this is developing a department-wide strategy for transitioning the DOD from today's cybersecurity frameworks and tools to Thunderdome or other zero trust solutions. So that means uh, the, the importance here also is because this is potentially a huge building block for whatever comes next for DISA, right? Absolutely. This isn't, you know, just an isolated project uh, for DISA. Uh, this is expected to be, uh, the zero trust framework is expected to be far reaching and they're hoping that uh, this Thunderdome prototype that they're developing uh, will help them implement that solution. Um, and this uh, six month extension of the project, uh, which is now expected to uh, run until January of next year, uh, this extension will uh, also enable them to do more uh, operational and security testing beyond what they had initially planned uh, with the original uh, prototyping project to uh, try to mitigate risk 
So as they do roll out and deploy these zero trust technologies, they're a little more confident uh, that they're going to work the way that they want them to work. All right. Uh, John, thank you for that. What are you tracking in the week ahead? Uh, later this week, there's going to be uh, an integrated network systems of systems technology forum. Uh, Tim Grayson, the special assistant to the secretary of the Air Force, is going to be one of the keynote speakers. And uh, I'm expecting to hear more about how the uh, Pentagon's JADC2 effort is going, uh, which is the uh, initiative to try to better connect uh, all the military services, at different sensors and shooters uh, and uh, networks to uh, enable faster de decision making and uh, more effective uh, war fighting activities. Brandy, what are you tracking in the week to come? Well, Francis, um, both Congressional Chambers Intel Committees have passed versions um, of the Intelligence Community's funding bill for the next fiscal year. So I'm going to dive into those and sort of see um, the emerging technology provisions and other provisions that are impacting the Defense Department. I'm also really looking forward to um, an event that is being hosted by the Mitchell Institute um, on Thursday that's going to have Dr. Christopher Scalise. He's the 19th director of the National Reconnaissance Office, and he's going to be discussing the NRO, the Space Force, Space Command, and how they're all collaborating, as well as current threats and space acquisitions. So happy to report on that. Brandy Vincent, John Harper, thanks both very much. Thanks, Francis. You can read more about these headlines and lots of other Defense Scoop stories at fedscoop.com. The Defense Department's Chief Technology Officer, Heidi Hsu, has 14 technologies she's emphasizing throughout the department. One of the leaders in executing that vision is Barbara McQuiston. She's Deputy Chief Technology Officer for Science and Technology at DOD. Barbara, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. It's great to talk to you. What's your portfolio among the Deputy CTOs as Deputy CTO for Science and Technology? Welcome. Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me here. This is really a great experience. And uh, the portfolio is quite broad. Uh, as you probably know, within the Department of Defense, science and technology is critical to every mission that we have. And agencies such as DARPA are involved in the frontier of technology and visionary points. But really, in the science and technology portfolio that I have, the two things that are critical are what I call foundational technology and science and emergent technology or futures. So along those lines, uh, in the foundational side, we have a lot of activity. We have all of the basic research, which in, in DOD uh, terms is what we call 6162 and 63. And that's very early stage basic science, uh, what university work, and it moves into more mature points that then can be put into technologies. And we also have uh, all of the uh, federal FFRDCs uh, that help us in that research and applied research. And that FFRDC contribution is huge because they take on uh, governmental missions across agencies as well, and that support is is you know, very unique and uh, very substantial for us. And we also have uh, what we call um, the, the Manufacturing Innovation Institutes, and that's getting more into the, the future side, because as we look at advancing technology, it's very critical to be able to manufacture it. 
And so the, the Mantech and the Manufacturing Innovation Institutes, we have nine of them that are around critical technology areas such as robotics, uh, additive manufacturing, and other areas where we are actually focusing on challenge problems, but we bring together a whole ecosystem between universities and small businesses and large companies that actually work on these challenge problems and are able to de-risk the manufacturing side so that we can build up the future defense industrial base. And in part of that, building up the future industrial base, we're also looking at the STEM education. And again, that goes back towards basic research and, and actually what I would call the, the pipeline of students and talent and everything else that we need to move science and technology forward. And so early, early stages of STEM involvement straight through to uh, uh, scholastic work uh, with the universities and also being able to incorporate uh, the nation as a whole. So we do a lot of work with HBCUs and MIs and a lot of focused activity there uh, because we need everyone on board in, in this case to be able to contribute to national defense, national security, and also for our own economic future. If we look at some of the critical technology areas, like uh, Heidi Shu has listed 14 of them, four of them are actually in the S&T portfolio, and they include biotechnology, quantum science, advanced materials, and future wireless. And future wireless is beyond the 5G. And these are in my portfolio rather than uh, critical technologies uh, or advanced capabilities because most of the investment is still on the early research side, early science side, and also sort of ubiquitous to a lot of things that we're doing. So if you look at advanced materials, keeping that foundational work moving forward that touches everything that we do is so important. And being able to uh, invest in that and support that and see where there can be breakthroughs. Now, I also believe that in the emergent technology side, from the basic science side, a lot is going on in quantum science and biotechnology in the commercial sector. And we need to be able to look at opportunities and be able to pull it into defense needs. So a lot of work goes on within not only the ecosystem, but also looking at pulling in non-traditional performers and small businesses and looking at where the opportunities are that actually can have defense significance. And this is very important for us because we need to accelerate and innovate and be able to do this with a lot of agility and speed Within a lot of the technology areas that I described, uh, especially in our four key ones, um, oftentimes people look at the investment in science and they say, well, you know, I need something right now and or they'll focus on quantum science and say, well, a chip scale atomic clock is quantum science. And you can sort of look in the portfolio of where that science is. Many, many emergent technologies will come from that. So you have to keep the foundation moving in order to have those opportunities in emergent technology moving forward. But you also need the ability to move very quickly in picking up these opportunities and putting them into an applied area. So, um, so it's exciting work. It's, it's, it's defending sort of the foundation of what makes this country strong and the scientific leadership that we have, but it's also in uh, moving quickly and being able to incorporate 
that into the industrial base for the Defense Department. You mentioned DARPA and you spent uh, uh, some time at DARPA. How does that inform the way that you approach managing this portfolio, Barbara? Well, you know, there's two aspects of that. One is is that I realize so much can be accelerated in a very fast amount of time if you really concentrate the time and put the challenge problems out there. And I also uh, uh, look back and realize that a lot of the things that we worked on at DARPA are now coming to, to, to fruition. So I always like to say, well, let's get it the rest of the way so that we can actually make a difference. Um, but the importance is that you know, my experience at DARPA was always uh, looking into the future. You know, you know, the classic, you know, story is is looking at at how many new emergent diseases climate changes and 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 increased population was producing, and realizing that you know we needed a whole new vaccine technology and a whole new distribution method to start and production method to really start looking at some of the challenges that we have. And if we hadn't been thinking about that and investing in really uh, you know foundational work in in new areas, we wouldn't have had you know, the opportunity to have the vaccine technology we did when we when we did have the COVID hit us. So in in realizing that you have to invest in that foundational work and be thinking ahead of time is critical. In biotechnology, we definitely have that in in looking at how production for energy, how production for a lot of the materials that we use right now can be done in an entirely different way that is actually if we if it's adopted and moved forward, could also uh, help in, in in climate change and other sort of challenge areas that we have. You talked about the importance of understanding what's going on in the commercial sector and how commercial advances can apply in the Defense Department. It's something the department's been working on for a long time. Where have you seen, where do you see success in doing so, either through infrastructures that the department has set up or something that the private sector is doing to reach out to you to connect in that way? And what do you see as the important things for not just your office, but for the department more broadly to continue to do in order to accelerate that connection, Barbara? Traditionally, one of the best programs we've had is the Small Business Innovative Research Program. And even if you look at the SBIR, it's been around for, I don't know, almost 40 years, maybe. <laughs> I'm probably dating myself, but yeah, <laughs> a lot of my career. So, but if you look anywhere between 1995 to 2018, uh, the return on investment there was uh, 22 to 1, which is very good. But in that point, you had 1.5 million jobs, and you also had a large number of performers that would not have been necessarily working with the DOD. Um, a lot of startup companies that got their start because the Defense Department was interested in this technology, and uh, applications that oftentimes, uh, when they started, were not the the hot thing. <laughs> So artificial intelligence, you know, 20 years ago, a lot of people would 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 not have put it on their portfolio mark to be tracking. Um, and that's really critical that we invest in this early stage technology and um, I would say more high risk technology sometimes because it really does pay to invest in the early stages. Because now, of course, once commercial investment moves in and it becomes a more mature and applied technology, then then it is it does have a lot of uptake. And when it has a lot of uptake and when there's even just technologies that look like they could be very disruptive and very important for security and defense, 
we have to be able to prototype very rapidly and then be able to experiment and uh, see how it fits across the services in, in real scenarios so that we can very quickly adopt the technology and have that uptake. And, and Heidi Hsu's done a great job uh, working with the deputy secretary and pulling together innovation, but with the Raider Experimentation Fund so that we can start pulling this in and experimenting and then actually put mechanisms in place so that we can do that investment for the uptake and the ad adoption of the technology. And when you talk about investing in high-risk technology, it strikes me that your DARPA background probably also gives you a, a better appetite to be uh, able to do that, to be willing to do that, and to understand the research that's required and the data that's required to make those high-risk investments as educated a risk as possible. Is that is that fair? That is very fair. And in fact, uh, you know, at DARPA, we always have a sense of of urgency in what we're doing. Uh, sometimes that's because you have only four years to do all the things that you want to do. So you have a, a fire in, in you. But I still believe that that sense of urgency and that sense of risk taking is what has made this country strong. You know, throughout throughout the time, you can point to uh, many pieces of history and technology where it was game changing and where it made a huge difference. And and that's that's our innovation. That's our that's our our strength. You talked about the fact that 20 years ago, maybe people weren't paying attention to artificial intelligence. And a friend of mine that's in the venture capital game says we invest in 10 technologies or companies and we hope to get two of them that actually turn out to be something. I don't propose to. Uh, to, to know what the odds are like that inside the Defense Department. But I wonder how you go about evaluating what might be the AI of 20 years from now, the technology that we look back on 20 years from now, when hopefully you and I have gone on to other things and we're retired and enjoying the rest of our lives. And the folks that follow us are saying, boy, we're really glad that at some point somebody decided this was something we should, we should be paying attention to. Well, let me tell you something about failure. Failure is important. Uh, being at DARPA and working with DARPA over my career, I can tell you that there are ideas that might, DARPA might have tried and it might have failed, but it might have failed in interesting ways. It may still be a very valid idea, but perhaps computer memory or, or materials weren't there yet. And you, you fast forward 10 years and that idea actually may be something that could be implemented now. So, uh, being able to not have that corporate memory and having people move in and out is important because people don't look back and say, well, we tried that and it didn't work. But also realizing that the pace of technology is very is very fast. And when you see, uh, uh, when you invest in things, and I, as I said before, it might not be mature enough, but it's still something that can be pushed ahead. So understanding that uh, you have to take those risks is critical because you learn so much and you actually maybe get people thinking about how it could work. And so you continue moving innovation forward. Uh, it's important, I think, in to develop the ecosystems for this because uh, you, you want to be able to go from idea to substantiation in a rapid way. So uh, being able to pull together communities that include the small businesses, the entrepreneurs, the universities, the large companies, so that problems can be worked on and solved and and continuously so that we can actually be advancing uh, innovation as fa at, at a rapid rate. Barbara McQuiston, the Deputy Chief Technology Officer of the Defense Department for Science and Technology, you've, you've used the word ecosystem a couple of times. What's symbolic or instructive about that word 
either specifically in the ways that you've used it or more broadly in what you and your colleagues are trying to build in, in Heidi Shue's office of R&E at DOD? Well, the ecosystem's important. I mean, it's a term that it's tossed around a lot these days so that it maybe have a little bit of overuse because <laughs> it t comes to mean everything. But the way I look at it is collaboration around uh, a, a challenge area. Uh, but collaboration in one that actually uh, is able to connect the dots faster and move technology forward faster because you have uh, just not a single entrepreneur running around trying to push an idea forward, but you have a framework of support along those lines. And you have the ability to bring in education and training, certification, and all the things that are necessary to quickly bring that technology into the industrial base, like the MIIs, or be able to have the, the technology move forward into a large application very quickly. So you want to really accelerate that. And that's a that's a collaboration. That's a collaboration. And it's usually a joint investment structure. Uh, it's not just a, a single agency fostering all this all the way along. There's contributions all along the way, both from uh, the, the scientific community as well as the investors and uh, being able to get that sort of government partnership with industry to move things forward. These are all collaborations, but they're going to be able to collaborate if they're in an aggressive community that's moving ideas forward, that's already sort of has that basis of connection. You talked about your portfolio at the beginning of our conversation, Barbara, and I imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, that your closest peers in implementing uh, Secretary Hsu's vision are your colleagues as deputy chief technology officers, one for critical technologies and one for mission capabilities. How do you interact and, and how do you, does your portfolio interact with their portfolios across R&E? Well, as I mentioned, we do the foundations and the futures. So we're able to do that foundational work where critical technologies is doing what I would call in my, my terminology, some of the heavy lift. So the hypersonics, uh, for instance, or directed energy. And these are, are really significant lifts and ability to pull the, the whole DOD together around these nascent technologies that are, that are critical for our services. We work in the hypersonic side. We have the Joint Hypersonics um, Technology Office because we want to look at where can we make investments in emerging technology now so that five, 10 years from now, we have those advanced materials, we have those solution spaces so that we continue uh, uh, with this work that we need to have going, which is uh, not typical in the sense of it's not a, a direct roadmap, like you would have a, a product and the next generation product. You would actually have it informed by the roadmap, but also informed by breakthroughs in science and work that's going on that maybe wasn't visible at the time. Like I said, the emerging breakthroughs that have to that that keep things going forward. Mission capabilities is where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. This is where you know you can actually pull together the joint exercises, the experimentation, the fielding of technology, the mission engineering, and you know work across the board as to what this really means for the services and for capabilities that we, we want to pull together. You mentioned earlier these four areas on which your office focuses, biotech, quantum science, advanced materials, future G. Give me a thumbnail, if you would, of each of those and the work that you're doing on those now. In, in the biotechnology side, uh, 
there is so much going on in both the commercial sector and in maturing technologies, as well as basic research area that's moving forward, that is really what I would call uh, game-changing. Uh, game-changing, uh, again, you can sort of point to DARPA, who did a lot of work in the futures area for this, um, but recently being able to um, to grow a runway in 48 hours and, you know, and have it working, you know, it's, it's continually working right now. So, I mean, being able to do that from a manufacturing side, I always look at, you know, there's scaling up technology and scaling out technology and scaling out technology means having the ability to make things right where you are. And that's another, you know, area that biotechnology is really moving forward for us, being able to have fuels or energy or being able to make materials and grow the materials essentially. Um, and taking advantage of looking at mother nature and seeing how mother nature does things. How do corals grow and how does the bacteria sequester the CO2 and to the coral. I mean, these are mechanisms we can use to build materials and have them available for us in, in very different ways and really change how we look at secure supply lines and, and, and how we have that uh, technology available for us and for the, for the nation at large. Quantum science is something that I know requires somebody to be really smart and I haven't penetrated it yet. So give me the uh, amateur outsider's thumbnail of what quantum science means. Well, quantum science is uh, really taking advantage of, of photonic information and how it changes things, uh, if you could, you could say that, or how you could utilize a, a photon in many different ways. Um, this is amateur hour here, so... Thank you. Thank you. I need that help. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's a lot of things that uh, quantum science has opened the door for, including chip-scale atomic clocks, uh, and Mother Nature is actually uses uses biology uses quantum science as well. The recent article in Nature over a year ago that was showing that birds navigate through a quantum receptor uh, in their eye, uh, and that gives them full global navigation, which is incredible. So I mean, there's all these little breakthroughs, but it also gives you a whole new way um, to look at uh, quantum computing and quantum networking uh, using qubits. So just like sort of the revolution on on uh, computing itself could really change with breakthroughs in quantum science. Advanced materials are what, and what does a material have to be or comprise to be considered advanced? Well, there's a lot of challenges in advanced materials. I mean, advanced science and advanced materials has been going, going on for quite a long time. You have nanotechnologies, you have uh, uh, ceramics, uh, uh, you have a lot of materials that can really change how we make microelectronics. But what you really look at in advanced materials are materials that you can produce to make breakthroughs or meet the challenges we have. So uh, uh, sort of looking at the ability to, to do uh, high temperature uh, uh, ceramics for you know, aircraft or hypersonics. I mean, there's there's a lot going on in material science that uh, that is is helpful and being able to pull that research together and identify where those opportunities and where those emergent uh, challenges are. Uh, I think is uh, something we need to do from an advanced material standpoint. So really pulling it together with the not only the roadmap but looking at where the where the uh, disruptive uh, opportunities are for advanced materials. Is that where rare earth materials live or is that in a different area? No, that would cover rare earth materials as well. 
Yes, and new production ways to get after rare earth materials. All right. You mentioned Future G and the fact that it goes beyond 5G. We're on 5G now at a consumer level. I know there are a number of projects across the department around 5G. How far ahead are are you looking as a department? And And I wonder if we'll get to a point where there aren't specific generations where it will just be a continuously iterative, continue, continually evolving process? Uh, well, you know, it's, it, like anything else in technology, everything's always evolving and moving ahead and changing. Um, but the foundation of 5G that we're using right now really produces uh, new opportunities in the spectrum that are that we can utilize now, um, which which is very critical for how we want to move forward, not only for the DoD, but for the nation at large. So uh, looking at traditional uses of the spectrum can can change now. You can have uh, things move throughout the spectrum with much more agility. You can actually uh, be able to do real-time monitoring and tracking uh, of spectrum use. And there's all sorts of technologies that will move us forward, but we also want to create pathways for innovation. So if you look at uh, the open radio network uh, challenge, I know DARPA's started that, trying to putting together through the Linux Foundation, the ability to have um, uh, open design and uh, for the for the open radio network uh, as a foundational piece of technology, and uh, that will change the nature of how we how we actually communicate and move information around and accelerate the industrial base. Barbara McQuiston, the Deputy Chief Technology Officer for Science and Technology at the Department of Defense. I'm grateful for your time today. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. You can read more about all the technology Ms. McQuiston talked about in today's show notes at defensescooppodcast.com. The Defense Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every week on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Defense Scoop Podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Defense Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Defense Scoop Podcast returns next Wednesday. I'm Francis Rose. I'll talk to you then. Thanks very much for listening.